Hines is proud to present the WHS Healthy Shab Speaker Series. This week, Peter Craig from Austin Professional Counseling shares navigating life's transitions with resilience. Um, well, all right. Hello. I see some familiar names, so welcome back. But for those that are new and joining us, I'm Christy Wadehofer. I'm one of the two student support counselors over on the high school campus, and we put together this speaker series for you. Um, we have had a full stacked schedule, and actually, we've had Peter on our uh, agenda since last year. He's been committed, so we're really appreciative to have him here with us finally. Um, he was one of the OGs. But... Um, did want to just also mention I am putting together the uh, next year's speaker series and so if there's a topic that you're interested in or you want to know more about or you know just kind of anything that you've heard please pass it my direction um, I'll put my you know contact information in the chat box and again the link to the Healthy Shops website which is also where you will be able to find this video any handouts and a link to the podcast um, afterwards but without further ado, I want to make sure we can allow Peter to have most of the hour. So Peter Craig, thank you so much for being with us. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. So I'll just dive right in. So I'm Peter Craig. I work at Austin Professional Counseling on BK's Road, so not too far from everybody. And uh, I specialize in couples therapy, group therapy, trauma therapy, mindfulness practices, and healthy sexuality. And so a lot of passion to share with you today on resilience and using neuroscience and emotional regulation to have more fulfilling relationships and thrive as much as possible in this really interesting time. So the topic is navigating life transitions with resilience through neuroscience and emotional regulation. And I chose that topic because it's the end of the year and I imagine some of you have teens that are just starting high school perhaps or they're just finishing high school and even if you're just going from one grade to another there's a lot of stress and there's a lot of uh, bumps in the road I imagine that you're having to deal with with the end of the semester or the end of the year and planning for a new year and so this information will be helpful kind of across across ages and across uh, different chapters, but I'm wanting to just to talk about how to get through transitions. And it feels even more uh, poignant because of Corona and what's happening where our lives are disrupted. And um, there's a lot of uncertainty. And so here's, here's a little introduction, how to cope and be resilient during these chaotic times. Introduction, so just talking about this time and as a counselor, I wanna share just a little bit about what I'm experiencing talking to couples and groups and individuals, uh, what everyone's going through. And I know you're all going through your own journey with this. And I think neuroscience is important because it's helping the counseling field have a better understanding of the process of change and how to have practical tips on understanding how your brain works and how to use that information to your advantage and because there's a lot of stress happening. Um, I wanna talk about emotional regulation and I'll explain what that means when we get there on how to regulate your emotions and help your children or teens regulate their emotions in a way that feels more skillful and helpful in reducing stress and anxiety and difficulty. And some of you might be familiar with attachment theory. It's uh, studies that have been coming down over the past 50 years on 
on our psychology and our relationship dynamics that is very important. And I find myself talking about this a lot with clients, especially with couples. And so definitely wanting to support your relationships with your partner as well as your kids. And then more information on intimacy and development. And I have a, a list of resources uh, on the last slide that you can explore further if you'd like. So you may have, have come across articles or just had your own experience with this, but we're grieving right now. You know, our life as it is, is different. And we don't know how it's going to return, you know, talking about a new normal, we don't really even know what that might be. And so with this uncertainty, there's fear that you might be noticing, um, stress levels might be rising. Um, we might be grieving on multiple levels. You might, I imagine some kids, you know, not having their graduation. That's like, that's really might be heartbreaking for some people. Others might not care. Some people might be really hurt by that. And so wanting to just be tender and sensitive to the fact that people are grieving in different ways. People have lost their jobs or putting stress on relationships being in quarantine. And so I want to just offer care to everyone going through that and give you some strategies to help get through that. Transitioning from, as I mentioned earlier, from one grade to another, or some of you might have kids going to college, it's a major transition. And so there's the stress of that plus the stress of the uncertainty about the future with everything happening with Corona. And certainty is something maybe more of an illusion and we're seeing how that's cracked open a little bit where there's more uncertainty and that's just part of life is we don't know what's going to happen, but we can have a willingness to embrace complexity. And I think that's a really important word in neuroscience and psychology is being able to understand multiple points of view, being able to hold more ideas and be able to process information that takes more brain power. And I'll explain a little bit more about that. So first I wanna talk about how stress, the added stress you might be experiencing really leads us to have coping strategies. Some of those might be more ideal than others and we all have our different relationships with um, the things that we use. You know, Exercise can be really healthy strategies. Sometimes it can be over-exercising, you know, Eating can be something of a great source of joy and pleasure, and it can also be a coping strategy. Um, drugs and alcohol, as some of you might be experiencing with teens getting into that, having to, trying to regulate stress. And so resilience is the ability to adapt positively to difficult or uncertain circumstances. And so what I'm wanting to offer is kind of a lens of practicing resilience for you and your family to get through these times and do as well as you can and even thrive if possible getting through these circumstances. Um, some of the ways you can cultivate resilience are by instilling positive habits. And you know, you have your kids at Westlake and I bet there's a lot of positive habits that you have. There's a lot of uh, intelligence in this community. And so just really finding ways to create rituals with your kiddos and with yourselves, even because the, uncertain times are kind of leaving us all reeling sometimes being able to have schedules structure specific things that make you feel good and really building them into your day i imagine you're all doing that but wanting to just offer that that is a foundational element of resilience to be able to get through the stress uh, a positive mental attitude and that's something with a lot of the fear it can we can lose that sense of optimism about the future or 
optimism about the way of the world. And so just wanting to invite everyone to a state of positive mental attitude that we're here and we have each other and we can learn and grow from these experiences, even if they're difficult. A really important concept in psychology is the internal locus of control versus external locus of control. And that sounds maybe weird, but it's, it's meaning that with an internal locus of control, you have a sense of agency for how life happens, that you can impact your external circumstances and that you have agency. And external locus of control is maybe where you attribute things always externally. And in research, we found that people who have more of an intrinsic sense of self tend to be happier because they tend to experience less attachment to their extrinsic self in terms of it's not just about you know the house you have the car you have the status you have it's about the condition of your heart and the quality of your relationships and trusting like i have these values that are important to me and they give me strength and meaning and i share those with my family and build those and so you know especially in this community where you have really really smart people really really driven uh, students and families to achieve really high levels of success, I want to offer that it's really important to cultivate for your children an internal sense of self where that you value them for who they are, that their intrinsic nature is, is worthy and lovable. Uh, because I think that sometimes the pressure of achievement academically or with athletics, really um, kids sometimes start to be trained in, well, I need to do these things to get the love. And obviously discipline's important and striving's important, but continuing to validate and nourish that internal sense of self for yourself and for your kids uh, can really set them up for success in life. So our brains have evolved in complexity. This is a really important and it can be simple enough idea that the way I've, I've learned from it is that, okay, this is our brain. So everybody can make a fist if you wanna do this with me. So our brain stems here. And you can see in the image, that's our oldest part of our brain, very ancient. Then we have our limbic system here, which is the emotional brain, or you could call the, the animal brain. And then you have our cortical regions. And then specifically the frontal cortex, the prefrontal cortex is the seat of higher reasoning, uh, more complexity, uh, being able to hold other people's views in mind and have empathy. And so, it takes more energy to fuel the higher centers of your brain. So if you're not sleeping well, if you're not eating well, if you're really stressed, what happens is you lose access to the higher parts of your brain and resort to more primitive behaviors. And this is when you, you know, get an argument with your, your partner or you're getting to yelling match with the kids or you have shutdown kind of experiences. And so one of the goals that I help couples with is really with arguments or just difficult conversations kind of you know, when you start noticing the lid getting ready to be flipped, how can you bring that back down to keep access to your kind of more human brain where you're going to not say that hurtful comment that you can't take back or not do that impulsive thing that actually is not something you truly want to do. So the invitation here is really that it does take more brain power and our brains automate our reality. Um, Stan Tacken is one of my mentors. He's known by as as one of the best couples therapists in the US and he has a whole theory of couples therapy that I think is really helpful and insightful based on a lot of cutting edge neuroscience. He integrates that into the work and that it's really 
about keeping our lids not from being flipped and being able to fight better. And so I'll talk a little bit more about that. Well, I'm not sure if y'all are familiar with the term windows of tolerance. This is developed by Dan Siegel, who's a, a very well-known uh, psychiatrist, psychologist in the field. And he created, a, this term's a mouthful, so just bear with me, interpersonal neurobiology. And the goal of interpersonal neurobiology is to integrate neuroscience, psychology, biology, systems theory, a lot of different sciences that help us understand us as a whole. And so it takes a little bit of wrapping your head around some of these concepts, but to me, having an integrative approach where we're understanding our physical nature, our brain, and our emotion, our psychology, is really a path forward. So this is a really important concept that when we get triggered or have a stressful circumstance, we might flip our lid and flipping the lid could be either moving into a freeze response um, and you might need to zoom in on this if it's a little bit small but the freeze response is kind of a shutdown where you might withdraw or you might have your teen withdraw or stop talking and kind of just um, but internally there's a state of distress um, and on the high end, you might have the kind of flipping the lid in the anger bursts, overwhelm, anxiety, and kind of a lot of conflict you might be familiar with with some of the kids or your partners. So learning how to regulate your emotions to where you notice that you're getting to the edges of your window of tolerance. And so when you go outside of those windows of tolerance, you lose access to the higher centers of your brain. So the goal is to really, we all have our own kind of window, if you will, and the goal is to expand that tolerance. And part of that is by when we notice that we're getting at the edges, practicing new choices, because our brain automates reality and it's easier to just revert to what we've done in the past that might be primitive or unhelpful, but that's just what we know as a survival strategy. So the goal is to practice at the edge of our tolerance. When I'm sure you'll get lots of practice or you're getting it being cooped up with, with the kids and, and your partner, which I'm sure there's lots of love, but being cooped up is a lot of pressure on us. It really is. Any questions about the, the window of tolerance concept so far? An important concept that I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about as we go on is that teens and children learn to regulate their emotions based on how they see you and, you, and your partners regulate their emotions. And it's kind of obvious in a sense, but it's also a challenge to take responsibility to really manage your emotional states with more awareness and, and grace and grit as much as possible so they can internalize that. And this happens at a very early age but it just continues to happen. And so what I wanna challenge and invite you to do is to, to practice regulating your emotions in ways that can feel less destructive and, and helping your teen do the same. And it's, some of you might be familiar with positive discipline. Um, there's a great community in the, this area around a lot of educators teaching positive discipline and some of the core information is that children need to feel like they're significant and that they belong. And so just an invitation to how can you cultivate that feeling with your, with your child or teen in the, in the heyday of all that's going on? 
can you help them feel like they matter to you and that they belong in the community of your family and, and beyond that? And what you can do is practice mindfulness. And it's been a buzzword for a while, but I imagine all of you have some sense of what that is. And one definition is moment to moment non-judgmental awareness with kindness and curiosity. So when we trigger, when we get triggered and start flipping our lid, we tend to lose mindfulness. We tend to not notice what's happening in the moment until afterwards. And we go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. Or, you know, they were being really annoying. And it's, that's just part of what happens. So mindfulness is, can you slow the process of communication down? If you're in an argument with your partner or your child, what are you noticing in your body? As an experiential emotional focused therapist, a lot of the work is helping people get from their mind's activity that kind of spins in circles sometimes with negative thoughts or patterns into what are you feeling in your body? And the first step is just asking yourself that maybe in a heated moment or just even throughout the day, you can actually start a mindfulness practice or just pausing you know, a few times a day and what do I notice feeling in my body? And maybe you don't feel very much and that's okay, but if you notice getting triggered, you're probably going to have some strong sensation, maybe in your gut, in your heart, in your throat. And being able to notice and label, like, oh, I notice I'm feeling tension in my gut, and then label the emotion. Uh, I've noticed that I'm feeling angry or um, frustrated. That actually accesses more of your higher centers of your brain, the prefrontal cortex. And so part of the benefit of mindfulness in the moment of being triggered is saying, oh, I'm feeling a certain emotion, I can feel it in my body, and just labeling it creates psychological distance from that emotion. Because if you flip your lid, basically that primitive, more emotional brain, all you would be seeing is, I'm just angry, I'm just mad. But if you can notice that feeling, label it in your body, all of a sudden you can have kind of an observing self from that higher center of your brain saying, I notice that I'm very angry right now, but that's not everything. And with that having those brain cells at that higher order of thinking, you can pause, you can practice an emotional regulation strategy I'm gonna go over with you to de-escalate conflict. And the more skilled you get in this, you can really de-escalate as much as possible and really reduce conflict and be able to manage your reactivity more skillfully. Emotional regulation strategies. So I took most of these from Wise Heart. There's a really cool practice in, in Portland that has some great handouts that are free on their website. So I, I link to that at the end. I really encourage you to look through those handouts. All of them are really helpful. Uh, but again, our brains automate reality. And so when we get triggered or we're in an annoying conversation at the same topic with you know the dishwasher or getting up to get to do the homework or getting on the Zoom calls to do school, um, it's easy to be triggered and just go to a more primitive, you know, yelling and that whatever um, reactivity that has some strategy that works on some level, but it might create even more distress or conflict or um, damage to the relationship. So these seem pretty obvious, but I think we don't practice them. So I encourage you to choose one or two of these and just practice it right now. I can't see you. So if you're squeezing or taking a deep breath, I won't notice. Uh, so breathing really helps regulate our emotions. And I'm sure you're familiar with that, but you can stop, put a hand on your heart or belly and breathe into the diaphragm, into your stomach. 
and exhale and you can elongate your exhale, maybe even double as long as the inhale. The reason why you might do this is when you exhale, it activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which is kind of our relaxation response. And so being extending the exhale is give, engaging in your relaxation system. And that can help get more blood flow to your higher centers of your brain if you're about to flip your lid. Straighten the spine and adjust your posture. Just having more, again, body awareness. It's not the same as asking what am I feeling in my body, but just actually inhabiting your body by straightening your spine, adjusting your posture. That gives you just a little moment to have potentially a new choice in terms of not being as reactive. Tensing your muscles and releasing them is actually pretty fun. You can squeeze your fists, you know, even if you're, if you're in a meeting at work and someone's being annoying under the table, you can squeeze your fists for a few seconds and relax. This discharges tension in the body. And so it's a helpful practice. Just immediately walk to another room or if you can get outside, sometimes we're just cooped up and we resort to more primitive behaviors with the people we love because we can get away with it. But that can still put some, there's still a toll on the relationship sometimes. So if you can have a practice as you hit a trigger, you're frustrated and you can notice that and remove yourself from the situation and come back even just five minutes later, all of a sudden you can engage with that higher order thinking and get more communication as a result. Um, so I won't go through all of these. You get the idea. Um, laughter. I hope that everyone's getting a chance to have some lightheartedness and, and love during this time because there is a lot of stress and it is serious that what's happening in the world. Um, and we can also take time to be playful with each other and be sweet with each other and allow ourselves to uh, have some disengagement or just even relaxation because there's so much intensity of I imagine a lot of you are having to do all these Zoom calls with your kids and you know, working at home and working and having the kids at home, it's really a lot. And so finding ways to bring authentic playfulness, playing games or watching some funny movies just to allow yourself that, which also helps soothe the nervous system, which can be helpful for communication in the long term. Okay. <laughs> so, I put this slide in here because you, dealing with, with teens can be, it's, I'm talking as if maybe it's just a, a couple and teens, there's a more complexity here with what they're going through. And you know better than I do having a teen what, what that's like. But this is a lot of text, so please forgive me. It's, it's taken from Dan Siegel, but I think it's really helpful. And if it's too much, just let me talk about it and then you can digest it later. What we've learned from neuroscience is that adolescence doesn't end till about 25 years old. <laughs> so I don't know if that's good news or bad news for, for you or just something to be curious about, but the prefrontal cortex does not fully develop till about then. And so what that means is there, Dan Siegel outlined the four dimensions that are something to take note of. The first one is intense emotionality. Surprise, not surprise. They're still developing pathways from the more emotional brain to the prefrontal cortex. And so their ability to emotional regulate is not as good as yours. 
you know, that's so of course going back to your ability to regulate your emotions and be and come from a place of responsiveness as opposed to reactivity helps them do the same and so just wanting to honor that there's an intensity of emotion that they are still developing with these emotional storms and moodiness but on the other side of it, there's this passion and zest for life and i'm sure you have moments of really being charged up from that vivacious uh, love that your kids are learning things in school or achieving things physically or just being a playful little uh, expression of your love with your partner social engagement so again seems relatively obvious but there's a, an intense need to belong as a developmental stage as, as a teen and so you know the, the downsides can be peer pressure and again coping with stress you know drugs and alcohol tend to be ways of coping with stress so helping your teen cope with stress in productive ways that you can teach them or help them with will reduce that and so the upside is that we're really learning as we're growing into teens and then becoming adults, the importance of relationship. You may be familiar with the Harvard study that one of the lar largest longitudinal studies found that the quality of long-term relationships is the greatest uh, indicator of well-being at the end of life. More than money or fame, uh, the relationships are what people really uh, made meaning. And so as teens discovering what it's like to be in relationship and to have a friend, to have an intimate partner, to um, grow intellectually and in all the different ways. And so wanting you to support your own relationships with your partner and the, your friends and the people you love most, and also encouraging your children to really discover the meaning of relationship. Novelty seeking, <laughs> other words, risk-taking behavior at times. Uh, again, they're, they're still developing the higher centers of reasoning where, you know, hey, don't drive that fast or whatever it may be. And the evolutionary drive of that is to be able to survive and adapt to the environment, to um, go out into the world from the cocoon of the home and going to college or whatever that may be and survive and be ready to handle the novelty because there's a lot of change going from high school to maybe leaving the state and being in a brand new place all alone. That takes a lot of, of brain processing to get through. Last but not least, creative exploration. And so I hope, I imagine at Westlake, you must have an incredible program of really allowing the creativity of students to really come out and thrive. And so I imagine all of you parents who are on this call really wanting to grow as parents and as people that fostering creativity is, is a part of that, whether that's the arts or music or just self-expression. There's an intensity of creativity that can be uh, maybe annoying if they keep changing their interests over and over again, but underneath that there's this authentic drive towards discovery and innovation and to be frank, you know, a lot of our discoveries um, have come from this adolescent brain from 17 to 25 in athletics and, and other domains of invention. There's a lot of youth power in creating new things and solving the world's problems and advancing our civilization. So fostering that creativity and understanding that there's highs and lows with, with these four dimensions of adolescence. Okay, so I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with attachment 
theory. I'd, I'd like to spend a good bit of time talking about it. If anyone has any questions, please let me know. It takes a little bit to wrap your head around, but we can do it. Uh, so in the 1950s, John Bowlby and some other researchers were studying the bond between the mother and the infant. And they did these studies where I'll just break it down for you. A child was playing with the mother in this environment. The mom leaves, the baby's upset, and then the mom comes back. And they discovered four patterns of attachment style in terms of the way the baby reacted to the mom leaving that we now know as attachment styles. And so understanding what your attachment style might be and what your children's attachment styles will offer you a lot of clues that maybe you haven't been able to put a finger on that are actually fundamental processes. Because the attachment style is, is a biological, it's a kind of a psychological and biological relational dynamic. What we found through neuroscience is that the development of the self is more of a two-party system of the, the primary caregivers and the infant than just an individual self that's this isolated thing. And so that's informed our counseling field that it's really about the relationship with our clients. It's not just the client and what they're dealing with and trying to solve their problem. It's the relationship creates this field of, of how we relate with each other. And so in this experiment, mom leaves, mom comes back with secure attachment. The baby's upset when the mom leaves, but when the baby comes back, the, the baby seeks the mother to be soothed and is able to be soothed. Like, oh, okay, everything's good. I'm gonna go back to playing, mom's back. In the second one, the island, as Stan Tacken uses that term, it's also known as avoidant attachment style and as adult, a dismissive attachment style. The mom leaves, baby's upset, mom comes back, Babies internally in a state of distress, but not having seeking behaviors. It's not going to the mother to be soothed. And again, this is this is more of a spectrum than just one camp or another. So it's it's a bit simplistic to just say that person's island, that person's wave. But having those as categories is helpful. But I want to say that it really is more of a spectrum of behavior, and we have pockets of each. Um, so characteristic of the island is that the child might learn to soothe their own emotional states and not necessarily seek proximity with the caregiver to regulate their, their states. Uh, that typically arises from parents not being available in extreme cases like neglect, but often, you know, parents are busy working a lot and kids in daycare and maybe not getting as much attention or something like that. And that's okay. It's just an attachment style. It's not right or wrong. We all have some version of one of these attachment styles, but the island tends to be very self-sufficient and not need a lot from others emotionally. But then they end up in the counseling office where their partner says, hey, I wanna feel you closer to me. And so the island tends to be skilled at regulating their own state, but that's more out of necessity, learning that it's too painful to try to rely or seek the caregiver when they're not going to be there. So there's a little bit of a shutdown and our brain actually prunes neurons for connection that say, hey, seek, seek proximity with your caregiver because it's too painful to have them not be there again. And so the island in a sense is learning how to 
lean into relationship where that's the goal in a sense, uh, but also honor that you can have time to yourself is maybe how you cool down or get over something, not necessarily talking it out with your partner, like maybe your partner needs. So moving on, the wave or is called anxious ambivalent attachment or uh, angry resistant or preoccupied attachment style. Baby's playing, mom leaves, mom comes back, baby goes to the mother to be soothed, but has a hard time being soothed. There tends to be a fear of abandonment and then clinging, which creates this kind of push-pull. And so some people might identify with this where maybe their caregivers were inconsistent. Sometimes they're really loving and affectionate. Other times they were unkind or just unavailable. And that creates kind of this push-pull element where waves, people identify more with the wave attachment style, get a lot of nurturance when someone else, like your partner, is there and really communicating that verbally and physically, like I'm here, I'm with you, I'm not gonna leave you, I love you, and things that kind of soothe the system. And so people tend to identify with one side or the other is a kind of simplistic way to get started with these concepts that you tend to be, and if you're dealing with stress, you tend to do, deal with it on your own or you tend to really get a lot of soothing by having someone be with you and kind of regulate with you. And then disorganized is, a much smaller percentage of the other attachment styles. There's about a third of secure island and wave um, in our US population-ish. It's hard to measure that, but that's the approximation. Disorganized might be in actual abuse and major neglect where this biological instinct to move towards the caregiver for care, um, but the caregiver isn't a safe place. Maybe they've been hurtful or they can't trust them even at a young age. And so there's this uh, push-pull of I can't even there's a biological instinct to move towards the partner to be sued, but then there's a biological instinct to actually move back and not be hurt again. And so that gets a little bit more tricky in terms of like complex trauma with, with trauma work. But again, having a healing relationship can in the therapeutic setting can help um, work with disorganized attachment to create more fulfillment in relationships. So no matter where you are, we can always improve our ability to have secure attachment. So hopefully I'm not overwhelming. Hopefully this is understandable. Please stop me if there's any questions or if I'm, uh, if you're not clicking into it. I found this really beautiful. The process of attachment is attunement, disruption, repair. And reading about infants who are brand, brand new, just born, their, their imperative is to yield to the, to the embrace and you know, gaze in the eyes and they come, there becomes an attunement process. The baby is looking at you, you're looking at the baby, there's this love, I'm sure you can imagine that, that memory pretty strongly. And then the baby's nervous system starts heating up because that eye contact is really intense. As you may imagine, if you stare into your partner's eyes more than five or 10 seconds, all of a sudden there's an internal uh, reaction. And so the baby will arch its back and look away and, and then come back. And so the nervous system cools down and then they re-engage eye contact and then we're good, that repair. So in a way, a lot of our life and meaningful relationships imitate this process of attunement, disruption, and repair of seeking connection and then it, you know, being disrupted and just the natural part of life, not because we're being disruptive and then a repair. And so... I'm really wanting to 
invite you all to see how can you attune more with your partner? How can you attune more with your kiddos and understand that disruption is a part of life, but then how do you repair in a way that can feel good? And we'll talk more about that. So Stan Tatkin taught me this and I find it incredibly helpful and it's pretty obvious, right? But understanding nonverbal communication is really important because when our brain starts perceiving threats, that's when we start having internal reaction and that's when we can flip our lid because maybe our partner raises their tone of voice or our teen raises their voice and that spikes your nervous system. And, and so, oh, starts, starts to flip your lid. And so how do you use these nonverbal communication styles to help soothe your partner or your teen and yourself? So touch, obviously if you're in a heated argument, trying to touch someone is not a good idea. Um, you need your space back up. Thank you. Um, but whenever there's just slight triggers or you're still kind of in conversation using touch on the arm or whatever authentic touch feels okay, it tells our nervous system I'm safe. And that helps engage the, the relaxation response and deescalate that kind of trigger where you might go outside the windows of tolerance. And as animals, we really need touch and research is really continuing to come out that supports that a lot of us are under touched in a sense that our brain is actually not even developing as much because if you look at like puppies playing, they're bumping into each other, rolling around each other. And that actually helps develop their neurons and their nervous system of like where they begin and the other, and they end and where someone else begins and ends. And so I know that it may be even a generational thing to some degree, or at least my dad's British. And so, that kind of whole culture is kids are seen and not heard. And there's maybe not a lot of physical contact with, with the primary caregivers and everyone's at where they are, but the invitation is how can you use more touch to foster connection, to deescalate stress in the body and to, you know, because maybe your teen is, is being unreasonable, but you can actually touch in a way that helps foster connection and gets through a difficult topic without reactivity. Tone of voice. You can practice with this. It's, we're so attuned as animals, as mammals to sound that a slight increase in tone of anger or domination that we might hear in our partner or teen can start creating major internal reactions. You know, how are you doing? How are you doing? What did you just do? What did you just do? It's very subtle, but it can be very pronounced. And so it takes discipline to notice what is your tone of voice? Because again, we automate our behavior with our brain only having so much energy to get the blood flow to, and the oxygen and glucose to our higher centers of our brain. So we, we maybe raise our voice at our partner or our kid when we have stress internally that we don't haven't even necessarily named and noticed and labeled in our body, that kind of comes out. And of course, like everyone, we're going to get annoyed. Stan starts his talks with people are annoying, relationships are hard. <laughs> and to me, I just, that's leveling that we're all doing the best we can and we all make mistakes and our memory is actually not that good, especially when we start flipping our lids. So trying to be a memory taskmaster and arguments with your partner or teen, not that fruitful probably as you may have experienced, but can you notice the tone of your voice? Are you really raising your tone or even just a little bit? And is that spiking anxiety in the other person you're talking to? And, Obviously, sometimes you need to raise your voice, so that's just what happens, and that's okay. But 
using it more as a tool to see if you can modulate your tone and help your family do it in a way that actually can reduce conflict. Body orientation. So again, we're mammals that our brains are wired for survival. And so if you're trying to talk about something important in the car with your partner, this is not a good strategy because you're just looking at them out the side of your eye, which means that it might be a threat. And so you really want to sit body to body with your partner if you're going to have an emotional conversation or with your teen if they can. Sometimes teens, that's like maybe even too overwhelming. So you can sit maybe kind of a little bit, not quite a little bit like this um, to regulate their system, but maybe with your partner, just noticing when you get in arguments, are you across the room? Are you yelling from the other room? And can you go and sit down right in front of them body to body and your, your nervous system can say, I'm safe because I can see them, I see everything in front of me, and that reduces the threat response. So it's actually surprising when I work with couples, I'll have them actually turn towards each other in sessions, even on Zoom calls, and get close. Uh, that's the next one. And it really can help foster more intimacy. Proximity. So from a distance, we're a threat. Anything is really a threat from a distance. If we hear some loud noise from the distance, there's a threat response that gets engaged. So if you're arguing with your partner too far away, your nervous system can't really tell that they're safe and that they're a loving person. And so can you get closer to reduce that perceived threat? Again, with an angry teen, you're not necessarily gonna get, get really close to them, but again, you can modulate if you are closer, not necessarily right in front of them, that may help de-escalate. And so that's the practice with, again, partner or kiddos. How does proximity affect um, not just argument, but even feeling close to them? Okay, eye contact. So some people say that the eyes are windows of the soul. Um, Stan says that the eyes are the windows of the nervous system. And so there's a lot that we can see in each other's eyes. And Stan says that love is up close in the face because we have the, we evolve these facial features. And I read a really cool article recently about how wolves, um, dogs started developing eye muscles around here. And so that they could reflect empathy and emotion in ways that wolves haven't evolved or developed. And so we have this really deep emotional bond with our pets and, and dogs. They, they have this emotional expression in the muscles around their eyes. And so if you're not being close with your partner or your teen often, you're, not, you're missing that chance to have that intimacy of really seeing their face and seeing their eyes in that activity. And so when I have couples sit next to each other and get close, and I'll say just be in each other's eyes for a little while, usually that you might, your nervous system might spike a little bit, and then it settles. And um, in terms of doing yoga, I've done some kind of long, long retreats, they'll have us do eye gazing for long periods of time. And you, do, you really develop a lot of care for the person that you're staring into their eyes. And so that can be an activity if that doesn't feel too weird is just to take a little time every day or every week with your partner or your kids to just be in each other's eyes, even just a little bit longer than what you normally do and just see if that fosters uh, more connection. Okay, so I'm talking about flipping the lid a lot. And if you do really flip your lid, maybe your teen crashes their car or, or you get in a big fight with your partner, it's important to let your nervous system cool down. 
and neuroscience research says about 20 minutes minimum is the time it takes to cool down your cool down your system and so being able to notice when you're at the edges of your window of tolerance and instead of kind of allow yourself to pop out of it and then be in a conflict state that you might regret can you notice that and take a pause and one thing i work with couples is practicing when they are at the edges having some kind of language to say like hey let's take a break because sometimes one partner maybe the island is happy to take a break but the wave is saying hey i, I you know you can't just leave me here in this conversation so finding a way that both people can feel supported in taking a break as a culture of the relationship and again even with teens if that's possible their prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed so maybe it'll be harder for them but it could be something you could still in, instill to have a culture of when we're getting really to a zone where we might do things we regret, we take pauses. And again, that takes discipline and practice, but it's something that you can introduce. Any questions or anything? Got about 10 more minutes, we've got a few more slides. Okay, uh, many of you may have heard of John Gottman. He's probably the most well-known researcher on relationships on couples what makes couples stay together and and break up and so i'm trained in gottman level one couples therapy and i love this concept he he found even just studying i think it was video footage of couples that he could predict whether they would be divorced or still together several years down the line based on their bids for connection so a bid for connection is really anything, any meaningful attempt to connect. You could say it's more of an emotional connection. You know, if you say, oh, it's, it's nice blue sky out, maybe that's not really a bid, but you know, when you share something that feels meaningful to you with your partner, that could be a bid. So you can turn towards the bid. So responding with interest and care, you can turn away from a bid. You know, often you might just not respond to the comment or kind of just mumble or not really give a fully present response, or you may turn against a bid, which might be disagreeing or being upset by the, the bid. And he found that couples that stayed together turned towards each other's bids 80 plus percent of the time. And couples that got divorced, it was about 30 something percent of the time. So this is pretty bulletproof in terms of a practical strategy you can take with your partner. And then it also applies in maybe a different context, but it's still something to bring awareness to with, with your teens is, are you minimizing bids for connection? Are you turning against them? Um, are you turning towards them? And what does that feel like? Um, again, if we're really stressed or flipping our lids, it's going to be hard to turn towards a bid but it's a beautiful thing to have a culture in your relationship or your family life where you're really trying to turn towards each other as much as possible. And if you don't have the resources, being able to negotiate, say, hey, I really care about what's, what you're saying right now, but I've got something going on or I'm overwhelmed right now. Can we talk about this later? Whatever strategy there is, but being able to find a way to turn towards each other's bids, because I imagine a lot of teens, maybe if they're on their own a lot or feeling overwhelmed with school, when they have one attempt and you might be busy or in the middle of something and, and you don't really notice that there's actually a lot of emotion underneath that and you turn away from it or just don't notice it, that can be kind of a huge internal distress. 
and that's asking a lot too to be always turning towards bid so just you know bringing your humanity and, and forgiveness and as life as a practice here that we're just doing our best to turn towards each other let me explain this slide because it may not make sense without the context it's in stan's book we do which is his newest book on if you're planning to get married or really wanting to commit to a long-term relationship what do you need to know and what do you want to practice to really make that work and we were talking about attachment styles islands and waves i think this is a very helpful tip that's why i included it is that uh, if your partner might you might think maybe is more of an island they on a nervous system again biological level not taking things personally that they are it's easy to take things personally when you don't understand your partner's attachment style and your own but when you do you realize that maybe it has less to do with you at the moment and more to do with ingrained biological nervous system strategies that are have been developed since early early ages so if someone develop relates with the island if you're in the same house as your partner that might feel close enough for the wave if you're in the same if you're touching then that's close enough and so in terms of conflict or communication people who identify with island tend to be overwhelmed or feel intruded upon or maybe experience distress when a partner comes out of nowhere with you know some bid for att attention or a lot of desiring for connection that can feel overwhelming and that has nothing to do with the person in the moment it might just have to do with the, again that attachment style formed at an early age so you want to have a soft startup if you have a partner that's an island or a child that's more islandy you want to make that the start of an interaction feel as smooth as possible so in couples therapy i coach people on being able to have communication around well how do you want to be approached if you're an island or if you're a wave how do you want to make sure that you can express how you feel in a way that doesn't feel intrusive or overwhelming for your partner, which leads to them shutting down. And then that's a conflict cycle where you might get more upset and they shut down more. And you know, that's a very common pattern, right? So it's hard for islands to go from no interaction to interaction for some people. And then for waves, going from interaction to non-interaction might be hard. You might feel dropped if your islandy partner is, okay, bye. And then they walk away and then all, you didn't necessarily get like the hug or the, the attunement of, hey, I'm with you, we're good. And so as waves taking responsibility to help our partners really speak to that, you know, that's kind of can be a love language of words of affirmation or whatever it might be to really make those transitions more smooth. And waves, non-interaction to interactions easy. So waves can kind of jump into the door and, hey, how you doing, da, 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 and then the island's, ah. And so this plays out with your kids and this plays out with your partner. And so being able to maybe identify some attachment styles and how those impact the conflict cycles can be really, oh, I'm seeing a question from Mark. Let me just answer that. Eye contact, Zoom or FaceTime contact is effective interaction when it comes to soothing. That's a good question. And I think there'll be a lot more research on it as we're moving into more telehealth as a counselor who's doing 20 sessions a week on Zoom, I, I do miss the physical presence. And I do think of like two nervous systems being in the same room has more of an attuning, connecting experience. But that being said, like we really can see each other and have uh, a connective experience over Zoom. So I don't know to answer your question more specifically, but 
I think it's just being intentional with trying to use your eye contact with, with connection. When you do Zoom, do the best you can with what that is. Um, so we just have a few more minutes. So I want to get through this quickly. So trying to go back here. Okay. So repair, uh, I mentioned that 20 minute timeout, maybe if you're in the middle of a heated argument with your teen or with your partner, research shows that the longer you go not repairing a conflict, and I mean more of like a, an intense conflict, not just a disagreement, but one where there's a lot of emotion and maybe hurt. The longer you go without repairing it, the more it gets imprinted into long-term memory. So some people have a culture, you know, maybe more on the islandy side, well, they just isolate until it's kind of passes. But for another partner, that actually might be really not repairing. And so taking responsibility to repair where you foster emotional safety and reduce distress is really important. So in terms of how to do repair, focus on your behavior, not with butts attached, make an offer of restitution, you know, like what can you do that would be helpful and find a way to move forward together. So the attachment is about creating a secure process. So I know I mentioned Stan Tacken a lot because I think he offers a lot of really helpful information that's not otherwise out there is that creating a secure process is the foundation of meaningful relationships. And so our attachment style informs how we grew up with that, how we've kind of survived that and, and understanding how to create a secure process by having a culture of being emotionally caring towards each other and responding to these bids and everything we've talked about can really help create more meaningful repair, which can help continue to create a foundation of trust and intimacy that can just keep growing and growing. Uh, I think this might be too much to get through. Um, there's nonviolent communication is been used all over the world for conflict resolution and I've trained in it and you can call it also compassionate communication, but it's a process of breaking down the conflict to be able to create repair by observing what happened and not an emotional or not a subjective story about it, but like when this fell on the ground, I felt this emotion and there's typically a need underneath an intense emotion. I have a need to argue well, or I need to feel safe. So can you please not do that? Or, or actually a positive request, can you please, whatever that might be. So I'm gonna keep moving because I think I just have maybe one more slide. Yeah, okay. So hopefully I'm not going through too much information here. I really like this slide because it's simple and it's a way to think about with your team. Is there maybe one kind of intimacy that you can foster more of that would be helpful or even with your partner? Recreational intimacy, just doing things together, you know, sometimes, especially more on the, uh, you know, guys in a stereotypical sense tend to bond more through like playing, like doing things together, maybe not as much emotional communication um, in a stereotypical sense, but of course, we're all across the spectrum here. But if that's the case, what are some things you can do with your team that feel connecting? Or are there certain conversations and intellectual exploration you can do? Uh, or is there just a lack of or a longing to have more emotional connection? And then obviously physical intimacy, spiritual intimacy, you know, exploring, there might be some of that right now with the uncertainty, you know, what is life about and where does it come from and where are we going and finding a system of meaning to help guide people through in a beautiful way. 
there's some references that you can access. And thank you so much for listening and, and being here with me. I hope what I shared is helpful and I'm grateful for Christy and for Roxana to have me. And I hope you all have a beautiful rest of your day and that you take some information here that's helpful for you and your family. Thank you for joining us. If you're interested in the archive video recording of this session and any corresponding handouts or resources, please visit the WHS Healthy Shaps website at healthyshaps.weebly.com.